Well, Ali, you were telling me recently that because of the promotion that you got, or not a promotion, was it a promotion? Well, I I became salaried. You became salaried. Okay. Uh, But we were talking about how you have less imposter syndrome now and have kind of like overcome that hurdle because there is more evidence of that legitimacy that you were seeking or more like evidence that maybe something that you start out as a freelancer or where you see yourself as more of an amateur becomes validated by those external factors. And yeah, you can see the, Im- the improvement in your work situation and in your professional situation and kind of label yourself a, a professional without having to doubt it or without doubting it as much. Yes. So it definitely comes and goes. Yeah. Um, there's some scripts where I'm like, I am not qualified to speak on this. What am I doing? But then there's others where I'm like, wow, I, I know what I'm talking about. That's cool. But so anyway, uh, I've been writing scripts for the channel for about a year and a half now. And I guess for that first year, I don't want to say that I had imposter syndrome all the time. But I felt like it's only a matter of time before she finds someone better. I'm very replaceable uh, (laughs) because, you know, we're writing about like bad businesses and sometimes history topics and just a really wide variety of different things. And so as I'm researching these companies and talking about the science behind some of the projects or the products that they have and some of the projects that they do and some of the issues that these companies have. I'm just like, what, what am I saying? I'm just quoting all these articles. I, I don't know what I'm doing. There's no way this is good. Uh, but then in the comments, it's like, wow, this is really well-researched. I really like this. And it's a little bit validating to hear that, but I'm still just kind of going, okay, well, I'm I'm not a journalist. I don't have any authority to speak on all of these things. And I guess I can say this because it'll be released by the time this podcast is released. Uh, We have a second channel that's debuting this month. Uh, I write all of the scripts for the main channel, but for the second channel, I am the boss of like five or six other script writers Mm -hmm. who all write for that channel. So it tells you how many scripts I have to write in a week when five or six have to do the work (laughs) of just me for that one channel. We need five to write on that channel. I'm, I'm the only one writing on this one. So, and even though it's a little bit much to also be the writer and the manager, it's not like it's, oh my gosh, it's so much work, but it's just, oh wow, this is a lot of new responsibility. Um, it was also validating when I realized how many people needed to do just my job for that channel. I'm like, wow, it takes five people to write as much as I write and yeah. research as much as I'm, I research. I must be actually pretty good at this if it's taking them this long. And some of them are communications majors and one of them is studying to be a journalist. And at first that really intimidated me. I'm like, wow, their scripts are going to be so much better than mine. And Blair's going to realize how crap I am. (laughs) That was the thought that I first had when we first hired them. And then they turned in their first scripts and this isn't me saying they were bad. Nobody's first script is amazing, but I'm going, oh, they're not at a level that I can't attain. Mm -hmm. Like they're not, at my level, actually, and I had to give them a lot of feedback and a lot of edits were needed. We, I did out at a couple points have to let some people go because they weren't up to par. Yeah. And 
I don't want to say that made me feel good. It doesn't make me feel good to have to let people go and say, hey, this isn't what we're looking for. I, it didn't make me feel like, ah, oh, yeah, ha ha, suck it. Like, not like that, <laughs> but it made me feel, it made me feel good in the sense, like, I understand what quality work is. I know how to put quality work out. Mm -hmm. I know it when I see it. And I actually have earned this position. And I actually do write good scripts. And even yeah. if there are mistakes from time to time, I'm not saying I'm perfect by any means whatsoever. But at the same time, I, I think I'm good at what I do. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to say it never, <laughs> it never shows up. I don't want to say I never have imposter syndrome now, but... It's definitely not at all what it was, mm -hmm. um, especially since we hired those other people. So, yeah, I don't think that like studying for it or getting a degree in it necessarily gives you any more qualification to be in the field. Um, yeah, we're just taught that. <laughs> yeah, well, because as you're saying, like when you're learning from scratch in real time and the stakes are actually high, that's when you learn the best, I think. And for sure. I've told this story on Mike before, but like when I started writing for a page, the first story that I ever wrote for a newspaper was horrible. And like I deserved to have imposter syndrome then. But when I actually started, like was signed on as a writer, I had weekly meetings with the editor. He taught me how to write journalism because I wasn't a journalism major. I had never done any real news writing before. And he taught me, like he shaped my ability to be a reporter. So yeah. it's one of those things where once you are immersed in it and the stakes are high and you're doing it for a living, you know, and especially if you're being mentored or at least closely supervised by someone who has a stake in your success, that helps mm -hmm. a lot. I think that kind of introduces this mentor protege idea to it, which doesn't sound like what your situation was, but it's certainly what mine was. And yeah, yeah. Uh, Matt, any ideas, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a victim of it all the time. I do every <laughs> single thing I do. Yeah, it happens. I mean, um, so am I. I'm saying in that one instance. <laughs> but it's weird too because it's kind of subtly different from being humbled as well. Like when you mm. find yourself in a situation where you are genuinely behind, like whatever curve is going on, and you're just like, oh my god, I I have to do so much work, or I I genuinely don't deserve to be here. I think the caveat is like maybe on a trial basis. Like I don't deserve to be here on anything more than a trial basis. And that's where it can turn healthy again. But if you don't add that little asterisk in there, like it can really screw with your self-worth. And uh, yeah, I've always struggled with it a lot. I think there's a big difference between humble and self-hatred because I am humbled by the mistakes I make but if I start to get too far into self-hatred and how could I do something that stupid and you made an error, how could you make an error? Then, you know, yeah, I know I've gone too far. So I think knowing where that line is and being able to recognize your own thoughts, if it's really toxic and self-hatred, then yeah, then that's imposter syndrome and you got to calm down a little bit. But if it's humbled, like, well, at least I learned from this, then that's fine. And I think that's more healthy. Did you read about the different types or like the different ways this can be expressed at any point? I just found this out today. No, I actually didn't do any mm -hmm. research. So I found out there's kind of a few, um, and I'm not sure how generalizable these terms are, 
but I, I relate to every single one of these. Some of the terms I feel like a dick even saying, it's like, oh, this is totally me, because they're all... Actually, I guess that is imposter syndrome right there in a way. But So there's perfectionists, which are... They set extremely high expectations. I'm just going to read this fucking thing. It's a paragraph. But... Okay. So they say perfectionists set extremely high expectations for themselves. And even if they meet 99% of their goals, they're going to feel like failures. Any small mistake will make them question their own competence. Mm -hmm. Experts mm -hmm. will feel the need to know every piece of information before they start a project and constantly look for new certifications or trainings to improve their skills. They won't apply for a job if they don't meet all the criteria in the posting. And they might be hesitant to ask a question in class or speak up in a meeting at work because they're afraid of looking stupid if they don't know the answer. Uh, the natural genius <laughs> has to struggle or work hard to accomplish something. He or she thinks this means they aren't good enough. They are used to skills coming easily, and when they have to put in effort, their brain tells them that it's proof they're an imposter. Soloists feel like they have to accomplish tasks on their own. Even if they need to ask for help, uh, they'll think that's a failure or that they're a fraud. And supermen and superwomen push themselves to work harder than those around them and prove that they're not imposters. They feel the need to succeed in all aspects of life, at work, as parents, as partners, and may feel stressed when they are not accomplishing something. So virtually every single one of those I was reading and I was like, Jesus Christ, like, I struggle with all of those things. I feel like yeah. such a dick calling them those things. Huh. For sure. <laughs> to say I'm the natural genius yeah. and that's the, no, the source of my struggle. But, but it's like, <laughs> man, yeah, like, there's so many of those things. Like, I totally have that, like, overachiever streak. And it's for that reason where it's like, I feel like if I'm not actively combating this feeling of being an imposter, then it's just going to be true. Yeah. And uh, I do that with every piece of my life. And uh, yeah, it's interesting. I just, I never quite thought about it this way. I always kind of thought it was more of like a singular component of who you are in a work setting or achievement sort of setting. But yeah, I found this, this is a time, yeah, time magazine article. Can you read soloist again? Yeah. Uh, soloists feel like they have to accomplish tasks on their own. And if they need to ask for help, they think that it means they're a failure or a fraud. Okay. Me. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm the soloist superwoman. The other ones I've gotten better about. Mm. I think I definitely used to be a soloist. I don't think I am anymore. I'm definitely not the... Na well, maybe I want to be a natural genius. <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably more guilty of being the perfectionist. And I think that's a really easy one to fall into too, because it, like so many, so many perfect things are modeled for us that when we're starting from the bottom and just learning how to do something from scratch, like getting to that point is difficult. It takes a lot of learning and studying and practicing. Yeah. There, I don't know. I had never really thought about the different facets of it though. And it, it is interesting. Like, they all have upsides, you know, like that's something that I, I never really considered before. It's like you think about imposter syndrome as something that's pretty wholly negative and just kind of sucks. But a lot of these things, at least in my own life, a lot of these have driven me to like to really set loftier goals and to shoot a little bit further than I might have if I had a more solid sense of myself or had like better self-esteem. So in a way, it's actually kind of been a strength. It's just been a source of agony as well. But it's been, it's been helpful, which is something I never thought yeah. imposter syndrome could be. Yeah, it also, I think we think of imposter syndrome too a lot around our jobs, for sure. Mm -hmm. And that's absolutely valid. That's where I see it 
arise the most. I think I've also had some imposter syndrome, just, oh, wow, I have a house and I'm in my 20s and I'm really fortunate that I do. And I'm really, really happy that I do. And I worked really hard for it. But I also have that feeling it didn't go away for a very long time like months when I moved in here like the bank's gonna take this away from me they're gonna realize (laughs) I'm not responsible enough like they're gonna realize I don't deserve a house they're gonna come in and be like what were you thinking Carol you can't or you know my fiance has this uh friend and she comes over and she has a kid and and the kid is hanging out and I'll watch her for a minute. And I'm like, what am I thinking? I could potentially be a mother one day. This is hard. (laughs) (laughs) Just with other aspects of life, I definitely get it. With work, I get it less because I've had a fair bit of validation recently with my other employees with script writing and with music teaching. I'm one of the most sought after teachers at the music studio that I work at. And I think it's just because I try to make it fun. I don't want to accuse anybody of anything. I think a lot of teachers, you know, they'll give out worksheets and they'll say, you're going to do this and we're on a rigid schedule. I'll be like, oh, hey, you want to learn the theme song to this song that you like? (laughs) Like just, you know, we'll, we'll switch it up a little bit. And I try to make it fun for the kid. And I really try to listen to them. And because of that, I'm, I'm one of the most sought out after teachers there. So even though there are times where I'm going, there's no way I should be responsible for this young one's love of music. <laughs> like That's a lot of pressure. When I get feedback from parents and from the school and it hasn't been negative, it's okay. Maybe I am good at my job. So even though I don't get it as much at my jobs lately, I get it so much when it comes to just owning a house and other aspects of life. I've been doing more freelance work recently and realizing Mm -hmm. how little, maybe I've always felt this way, but I don't feel imposter syndrome to the same degree that I should have when I was younger and had less experience. But I've always felt like I have good editorial instincts, and I don't mean that to be specific to like a writing piece. But for instance, I've been producing people's records and mm-hmm. being able to exercise the melodic instincts and the songwriting instincts that I have, but not for my own work, you know, to kind of challenge other people's decisions. And like you were saying with with the writing job, like it is just being immersed in it and then seeing the results immediately, having the instant gratification of your decision paying off in real time. Yeah. And I feel more qualified than I ever have just by virtue of doing it, you know, or doing it to a greater degree than I've done in the past. Just by improving. Yeah. Yeah. Just by improving and like and actually just doing it, not wanting to do it. Not dreaming of doing it, not aspiring to do it, but just doing it and learning from it. And I know that like whatever decisions I'm making and what, however I feel about it now, I might feel completely different about it or a different degree of qualified for it a year from now. And if I do that, that's, then that's fine. And hopefully I feel like I've earned it more in a year or hopefully I feel like I've learned more or have developed more into a better producer or a better editorial filter. But Mm -hmm. I think just the more that you do it, the more you 
allow that muscle to flex and allow that that thing in you to to grow and that like mm. filter to become more refined. Yeah. I've struggled with that one a lot too in the studio kind of environment. Like it's very very easy to fall into that trap in that setting. Especially cuz it's also kind of like subjective. There's no hard lines, there's no like hard qualifications like you know, especially around like playing an instrument. Like you can have somebody that was like trained in a music school to do their thing and then someone who just kind of like bought a guitar at a pawn shop and they both have equal right to do it. So it's it's tricky. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing, especially when you don't have like school tra- vocational training of any kind. Yeah. And like you you have to somehow go from I think I'd be good at this to my CV speaks for itself. My resume speaks for itself. Yeah. I think that's where comparing yourself to yourself comes in handy because mm. I mean, you hear over and over don't compare yourself to others and I agree with that. You don't ever want to it's really hard to do that in a healthy way. It's really, really hard to do that in a healthy way. I'm never one to say that that's a good idea because I'm always going to write less than somebody else. And I'm always going to write more than somebody else. And I don't want them comparing themselves to me. I don't want to compare myself to that other person. But I think if you compare yourself with yourself, then that's where you can really actually see growth and you can see improvement. And that comes in with schooling because a lot of schooling is just doing and just learning new ways to do things so as long as that's what you're doing then who says you're not learning like do i have a journalism degree absolutely not but does that mean i can't talk about this particular topic that i that i'm writing at the moment no uh there's one script that we're coming out with in a couple weeks actually that required me to interview someone and it was really intense. Uh, They work at OAN. Guessing you might know One American News Network, aka Trump's favorite news network. Ah, okay. Um, mm -hmm. (laughs) And I interviewed a current employee there who hates it there (laughs) uh, and talked to them about some of the very shady, possibly illegal activities that actually go on behind the scenes there. Ah. And did I feel qualified to interview them? Well, not really, because <laughs> I haven't haven't done that, but I interviewed them for the script. And I do think that just because of the interviews that I've read and because of the articles that I've read and the scripts that I've read, I, I did know what to ask because we got to the bottom of a lot of different topics. So I think that even though when I was going into the interview, you know, you could ask Jay, I'm, I'm about to interview him and I'm like, what am I doing? What has led me to this point where I'm about to interview this, you know, John Doe, I won't say his name. What, what has led me to this point where I'm interviewing John Doe? And he just goes, well, do you know what you're going to ask? I'm like, yeah, I have a list of questions. And he's like, well, then why are you intimidated? You have a list of questions. Like, what's wrong with you? You know what you're going to say. And once it actually started, I was pretty comfortable chatting with him and asking all those questions and all of that and gathering it up. And while there are a bajillion journalists out there who can do what I do, and I'm sure can do it very well, I'm pretty confident that there's also some who can't because what I'm writing aren't articles. I'm not writing, you know, 2,000 word articles. I'm writing 6,000 word scripts that are meant to be put on YouTube and as podcasts. So it's a very different 
kind of writing, and that's why some of the writers who actually work for me do struggle with it because I'm going, you can't use this language. Like, why Mm -hmm. not? I'm like, because it reads like an article, because it's really boring. You need to say it this specific way. And that's not changing the content, but I'm saying you need to have a transition here. Like, well, why? Because otherwise it comes out of nowhere. When someone's reading it, they don't care. But if someone's speaking to you and then they just switch topics, someone who's listening doesn't know that there's a headline there. So you have to keep all of those things in mind. Yeah. Well, and that person could succeed in another field of journalism. Yeah, absolutely. They they could be, you know, a hard news reporter or something like that. But I think that's important. Like when you say compare yourself to yourself, there's also just some introspection inherent in that. And knowing what field you would thrive in, it could be, you know, the field of journalism has within it multiple vocational tracts that one might be able to thrive in if they don't thrive in another. Like, so for example, if you don't thrive in heart in writing hard news, like there are many different subcategories of quote unquote new journalism where, you know, the more Rolling Stone type, like <laughs> I meet this multimillionaire rock star at the, at the doorstep of his billion dollar mansion <laughs> in the hills. And, you know, it's like you insert he yourself. Told me, yeah. <laughs> you insert yourself into the story a little bit and it becomes a different narrative. And it, so it depends on like what kind of narrative you are more gifted or more um, qualified Absolutely. to write. And I think like when looking at imposter syndrome, maybe you're in the wrong field. Or maybe you're in the right field, but you're in the wrong subcategory of that field. Or maybe you are taking on the wrong demands that aren't necessarily highlighting your strongest qualities. And there's also like pluralistic ignorance and stuff where you can kind of forget that everybody else is thinking some of the same stuff on some level. Like it might not be to the same extent, might not be the exact same things, but a lot of people are feeling the same way in a lot of those situations, like especially like starting a job or something or starting a new field or a new career, like that's just an objectively intimidating thing if you care about it. And that's oh, a good sure. thing. But it's like, I always think about it like, um, you know how like people always say, especially with like scientific stuff, they'll always say like, oh, and they found, like they discovered this new thing. Yeah. And it's always just this weird, like abstract they, like they never really get defined yeah. specifically. I, I found this like, group of smart yeah. people that we don't understand. Yeah. It's like <laughs> scientists, it like with the capital S, it's like they're just people that learned about this thing and became qualified and became good at what they do, and and now that's what they do. And it doesn't yeah. sort it doesn't downplay like you know their expertise; they earned it. But I think about oh, yeah. that a lot now with so many other things where I realize like I just kind of thought I had this like lane that I had to stay in, and anything where I'm stepping yeah. out of that is like I need permission. And that's bullshit. You yeah. don't, you know, you need to not suck. But I don't know, even then, I mean, I guess that's a bit of a sliding scale too. So it's like, it's fun, you know? No, it's so fair though. It's so fair. I mean, on the channel, we released a video recently about like Kangen water and why that's kind of a scam. <laughs> and the research that I had to do into like pH levels of water, like what? <laughs> am I researching? Like, it was so confusing. And a couple comments were like, Blair, you're not qualified to talk about this. And, you know, I'm the one who writes the script. She's the one who says it. And they're like, Blair, you don't know what you're talking about. And like one biochemist commented and they're like, well, technically you're correct on this, but actually, and you know, they'll, they'll put their thoughts. And I'm like, guys, 
I researched this pH chemical stuff in like an afternoon. Yeah. Like, there's people who devote their lives <laughs> to researching this. Yeah. Or, you know, for one of the topics that has also started coming out, we're talking about Disney and why they're a bad business. Mm. And we're currently on part one of a four part <laughs> series because it's that long. Just like, I could talk about this for years <laughs> and, and I feel super qualified to talk about all the shady stuff with Disney, but not at all to talk about Kangen water and pH levels. And, and it's not even that, I mean, yeah, they're definitely different. One requires a scientific degree, but at the same time, it's like, they're just people yeah. who research this. They're, they're just people who understand this pH water stuff. It doesn't mean I can't talk about it. It just means I'm going to have to talk about it yeah. from a very, very simple level. Yeah. And that's all that it is. But it makes sense too, because that's what the public would want to consume it. Like that's the level that they would want to consume yeah. it on. So it kind of works. Like as long as you can, exactly. you know, honor it with like, all right, I'm going to do my damnedest to figure out what the hell this means. And I'm going to report back. Like that's exactly. the truest form of reporting when you think about it. Because the same as like so many yeah, war correspondents wouldn't be. Yeah, they don't need to hear it be, in all those terms. Yeah, like someone that's like, you know, reporting on like a war, reporting on like a congressional thing. Like they wouldn't necessarily be a politician or a soldier, but like they they know enough to know like kind of the lines they have to color within. And then they know how to research. Yeah. And I think I love reading stuff like that. You just, you encounter new things that way. You don't always have to filter it through like, shit, now I have to sit down and read about biology for four hours to figure <laughs> out what the hell that just meant. And, yeah. It's good. But. Yeah, and I I did. I tried. It, it did not go well. <laughs> <laughs> Podcasts are an interesting one for me with that, like, that whole medium, you know, just with this whole medium. Even then, I see, I still kind of struggle with the idea that we have one. <laughs> but it's, uh, it feels like something that some, that other people do, you know? Even as simple as it feels like something that Joel does. <laughs> like, it's not even just other people like, oh, this is a thing like high rise people in New York City get to do. Like the way like I used to think about like radio when I was a kid and stuff. Mm. Yeah. Because it just seems so different. Like there's so many barriers to entry there. But even with this kind of stuff, I'm still at the point where I'm like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing <laughs> here, you know? Yeah. I think the reason why podcasts feel like, oh... Those people do it. I'm not qualified to do it. Or radio. It's, again, a kind of imposter syndrome where it's like, why would anyone care what I have to say? Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm not important enough to talk at someone for an hour. And that yeah. that can definitely be. That's also like from the Howard Stern point of view, you know, who was taking the stance on podcasts being like an illegitimate form of radio. Mm. And so it, it can it can have that feeling sometimes. It can have that feeling like, well, this isn't good enough to air in real time. I'm going to go and edit this and make it into a finished product <laughs> because sad. we're not set up to have a radio broadcast. So there is like, but it's a different medium, you know, Yeah, definitely. but it still does have that feeling of illegitimacy sometimes because it's not what is classic and traditional and more, I don't know if it's more revered because I feel like radio has, has been declining for mm. a number of years, basically since satellite radio became a thing i mean that's still radio but like kind of redefined in different terms but that's what i mean though like you might not be qualified to be a you know to be an npr host or something like that yeah. but if what you like is still broadcast and interviewing and the exploration of topics or anything like that then like there are subcategories within the broadcasting media spectrum 
mm. that allow you to explore that interest, that passion, that talent, whatever. And then you get better at it. And hopefully, um, I hope that we are. <laughs> and, uh, and as time goes on, you feel less like an imposter and mm. you feel more entitled to that happiness and yeah. more deserving of it because you've been putting in the work. I like that this generation is doing a lot of, like our collective generation is doing a lot of that kind of disruption too in a lot of different right. fields and a lot of different media. It just seems... It's kind of cool, you know, there's just the, some of those old paradigms and some of those old barriers and rule books are less relevant now. Sometimes for like really practical reasons, but sometimes for more of just like that light bulb comes on of like, we actually, anybody can kind of just do this now. This is good. Mm-hmm. This occurred to me when I was, I think, skimming that New York Times article was it New York Times Time Magazine Time Magazine Time Magazine article like when you're a st- when you're in school when you're a student and when if you're like not participating in class you're not raising your hand taking part in the discussion sometimes that's just disinterest sometimes that's that that's just boredom with a specific field of academia fine but I've certainly experienced like no one wants me as a part of this conversation no one wants to hear what I have to say about this author or this whatever. I think more than anything, I've, I've always been kind of like cocky about the fields that I want to work in, but always a little bit more timid in the classroom. Mm. Even if I had read the text, even if I had like a pretty good understanding of the text, I would kind of just assume that no one wanted my two cents. And I think it's really easy actually in academia to feel unqualified because the whole point is that you're speaking with someone who is more qualified. <laughs> Mm. or you're being taught by someone who is more qualified. And that, again, going back to the sort of like mentor-protege thing, like Matt and I were talking last night about community roles and how it's it's much easier and probably a, a good tool to use against imposter syndrome when you have a mentor from the older generation and like within the context of community, they are kind of passing down wisdom and skills and knowledge to you that you will use to then fill a role within that community. And then you'll know what you need to know. Mm. And because you're being sort of stewarded or shepherded through that process, you feel more qualified mm-hmm. when once you need to utilize that information or those skills. The same could be true of academia, where like if you're lucky, you'll have a professor that you really get along with or really feel comfortable with. And that person might be a mentor to you and and you might be taken under the proverbial wing. But I think for a lot of people, that doesn't happen. And for a lot of people, they kind of just feel unqualified until they have the degree. And they have the degree and they still feel unqualified. (laughs) But they kind of go through the motions of, you know, I'll just sit through the class but not participate because who wants to feel? And that's part of the elitism of academia. That's certainly to blame for some of this. But have either of you felt the sort of unqualified imposter syndrome sort of feeling of just being in a classroom and be like, no one wants to, no one cares what I have to say. Yeah. Oh, constantly. (laughs) Yeah. At Berkeley, you know, it's full of musicians that are insanely talented. And so even if you are talented, you're not going to feel all that talented among them. Mm. I'm sure some people do. I I didn't. Uh, And so it's, oh, well, what does my opinion matter? 
Mm-hmm. There's way more talented musicians in this room than me. Yeah. They can give a better opinion yeah. for sure. I was going to add too to what Joel was saying. Like, do you guys think that the way that like stuff like imposter syndrome can be kind of inextricable from self-worth or from self-esteem, like, do you think it can be enhanced if your interests are more esoteric like, or if they're not necessarily like the quote unquote, like cool kid interests, like when you're growing up, like if you're the person that's like I was, you know, like you like reading or you like music or, you know, just things that's not sports and not like going to dances and not talking about sports and going to dances. Like I found out, like it was demonstrated to me in real time for so much of my upbringing that nobody gives a shit what I have to say, you know? And it is, it wasn't that everybody was like mean or something, but it was just like when I went to that place where I was like genuinely excited and genuinely passionate about like, oh, this is my shit. Like I, I get this. I want to go learn more about this. People would always be like, you know, we don't really care about that. Uh, We're in no. sixth grade. Mm. And I wonder if I developed that kind of, I don't know, just that sort of playing field for my interests over time. Not that that directly informs the way that I process things now, but just... Maybe that was somewhat informed. Maybe my imposter syndrome kind of tendencies were somewhat informed by like some of that. Yeah. I feel like it. it's almost um, maybe not a self-worth, but like a, your interests are not good enough. What you like is not good enough. And that could just be to some level, to some smaller level. It could always just be you haven't found the right people yet. Yeah. And it definitely hits a little harder. And oh, well, maybe I'm not good enough when they don't know how to express that they're happy for you, even if it's not something they're interested in. Well, I mean, I think it made me like vet stuff harder too. Like in a way, like not necessarily even always making me feel like, like shit. I mean, a lot of it did, but like there's still stuff that I think like, I won't necessarily speak in a classroom setting unless I'm certain, like, unless I know, even if people don't get this, I have worked this thing through from every perspective I can. And I can stand by this. Like I'm like that even about like putting out, songs and just stuff anything that i feel like it has a little bit of a stake like i have a little bit of a stake in it i find that i i run it through a lot of different like kind of self-check filters it still comes out like shit sometimes or it's still you know like that absolutely happens but i think it's there way more securely by the time it comes out yeah and i don't think that that would have necessarily happened if if uh there had just been green lights the whole time coming up There's an irony to what I was saying before when I'm talking about having an appreciation for my own editorial filter and and working with people to be creative. And I don't mean this to sound conceited, but like in the way that I think they should be creative, you know, like Mm -hmm. there is a sense that you establish your own brand and that people choose to work with you because of what your brand is and because they agree with your creative instincts. So that's what I mean by the CV speaks for itself. The resume speaks for itself. But then like, you know, that is a form of, of necessary gatekeeping. An editorial filter is a necessary filter. And I think that people get imposter syndrome because those filters are in place or those filters have their traditions within the creative world, the professional world. And like I guess like eventually we're going to be doing this episode about when is gatekeeping bad? You know, and and when do we define it as bad, depending on the definitions that we apply to it within certain societal structures. But I think that like what I'm talking about is a form of gatekeeping. It's not a bad form of gatekeeping, 
but the perpetuation of it is why some people have imposter syndrome because they know that they're going to come up against that gatekeeping eventually and they're mm -hmm. going to have to prove that they're worthy of entry into yeah. a certain job into a certain field into a certain whatever so what is i mean maybe we can answer this question like what is it about certain types of gatekeeping that give people imposter syndrome and that make them feel unworthy and do we just need a lot of more welcoming more encouraging more open more nurturing mentoring people in the world to get us past those gates i think it's how you address someone i feel like it's all in the how because maybe there are some artists that are just not ready to go into a gallery yet do you look at them and you say your work is shit or do you look at them and you say hey i just think that your anatomy's off i think that you need more practice in xyz why don't you check out this so if you know, you go with the first one, then of course someone's going to have imposter syndrome. Of course someone's going to feel like they don't belong and maybe they don't yet. That doesn't mean they can't ever. It just means fostering their potential and their talent because anybody has the potential to do anything. So if you help somebody, it, it's not that their imposter syndrome is going to go away, but hopefully it would be more of a humbling experience than a self-hatred one. Mm. Yeah. And then you come across someone like me who is more of a soloist, or at least used to be, <laughs> and I'm not seeking out help. And if someone mm. offers help to me, I may or may not take it. And sometimes it's not a matter of imposter syndrome. Sometimes it's a matter of like, I want to do this my way because I have certain instincts that I want to follow, or I have certain goals that I want to chase. And someone else comes along and sets different goals for you. Like in teaching you how to do the thing, their goals for you are defined differently than you would define them. You know what I mean? Is that too vague? Well, I get it, but I think that a good teacher is not going to set different goals for you. No, that's true. Yeah. Or at least a good a good teacher shouldn't. Right. Because I have students where they say, my goal is to write a song. Yeah. I'm not going to tell them, no, your goal is to play this piece. I know some teachers do that, and I don't think that helps anybody. I don't think that's the way to teach. So I think it, a teacher's job is to align themselves with your goal, at least one-on-one. -on -one. I know that that's not entirely possible in a classroom, but when it comes to one-on-one, -on -one, when it comes to professionalism, when it comes to that, then they should be aligning their goals with yours. And if you're not willing to accept help from them, then hopefully they can just point you in the right resources for that. Yeah. You know, if I have a vocalist that really, really wants to learn songwriting and I know that they can't afford lessons anymore and they won't be able to, then I'll say, hey, I know you really want to learn songwriting. I know this is the genre you like. Uh, I can't be your teacher anymore if like they, they stop taking lessons for whatever reason, whether it's scheduling or whatever. I'll say, check out this and this. I think these will be of help for you along your way in your journey. Mm -hmm. And that is what I think is fostering that potential and helping them and hopefully not making them feel like, oh, I'm not good enough or XYZ, I'm not good enough to be a songwriter because no, it's not that you're not good enough. It's that you need whatever resources you need. You need whatever help you need. You need to grow some more. Yeah. Like there, I think there is a way of saying you're not good enough in a constructive way. And that 
that reframes it in that way to me, where it's like you're not damning that person to like, no, you'll never belong in this group because you don't have these skills. Like no one had those skills at some point and then they got them and now they're there. So it's mm -hmm. like by giving that person the tools or the the perspectives that they might need to kind of get to where they want to go, then you're kind of putting it back in their court again and saying like, no, this is kind of what you're what you're missing here. Check this out, see if you can do it. And then it's back up to them to sort of push themselves. And I think there's a there's a good balance to that. Yeah. The only thing I have no patience for is when students don't try. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. that's the only thing that I get so annoyed for is when it's, you know, it's been a month and you've come in twice and you've practiced neither time. <laughs> I have very little patience right now. Yeah. Uh, th those are the only times that I truly will be frustrated. Even then, it's not like I'm going to show it. It's not usually the kid's fault. Like they don't always have initiative to go practice. It's usually the parents. But <laughs> that's a whole other thing. <laughs> but no, I mean, when, if someone wants something, like if you want to be good at your job, if you want to be good at singing, if you want to be good at art, you know, imposter syndrome shouldn't be the thing that holds you back. It often can be. Mm. But it yeah. it shouldn't be as long as, I guess, as long as you have, whether it is a teacher or whether it is just something that keeps you on your goals, on your track. And as long as you know that you're doing the best that you can do, then you cannot do any more than that. Like if you are producing your best work and you're trying, you cannot ask for any more than that mm -hmm. you can't perfect that you can't you can't do more i'll speak a little bit more for the soloist which reminds me also of uh enneagram fours which is the individualist and it's kind of a similar, not so much in the imposter thing, but just like it's important that what I do is significant to me and is and has its niche place in my own interests. And so when I talk about mentors or teachers setting different goals for you than the ones that you want, that can look a number of different ways. And it can even be decided by what is more traditional or more accepted or more widely celebrated. So like my involvement in folk music has looked a very certain way, a very specific way. And if I were to teach a class, right, on like modern arrangements of traditional folk songs, people would come in expecting something because that thing would be more traditional or more widely celebrated. Mm -hmm. And I would have my own very niche understanding and very niche ways of, of engaging with folk music, right? So like if I took a class... And I said, you know, I want to do this certain thing. And then that teacher was like, yeah, sure. We'll have you playing in fiddle circles in no time. And I'm like, N that's not at all what I want to do. <laughs> like I realized that that's what you want to do. That's not what I want to do. And similarly, if I were to teach a class and people came in just wanting to play, will the circle be unbroken and like swing low, sweet chariot. And, you know, just like sit around singing folk songs in that way. I'd be like, that's not what I do, you know. So I think there is this sort of individualist nature to imposter syndrome. And I don't know if it necessarily qualifies as imposter syndrome, but there are some people out there who definitely feel this way. And you might feel qualified to do something, but you might feel unqualified 
to assert yourself in a certain field because your way of doing it is, or you believe that it's too niche for other people to accept. So like I might feel qualified to teach a folk music workshop, but my interpretation of folk music and my engagement in folk music is different than what the people taking that workshop would be expecting because it's not the widely popularized version of folk music that reaches most people's ears, right? So it's not necessarily imposter syndrome. It is self-doubt, and it's a belief that your niche interpretation of something or your proclivities are not going to be what are not are not going to align with what is widely recognized to be the standard or the norm. And I think for the soloist that could be a problem. For the again, the Enneagram for individualist, that could be a problem. And it could just make you question like, will this thing about me, which I really value about myself, be appreciated? Because appreciation might be defined by standards or traditions that were established long before you developed those talents and proclivities and whatever. So then I guess it depends, because there's a difference between appreciating it and working with it. Yeah. Because I cannot work with writers who can only write in a specific journalist style. That doesn't mean I don't appreciate them as a writer. And it doesn't mean I'm not going to, you know, validate them and tell them that their work is good. It's even if it's just not what I need right now. So even if you don't, do the folk circle if you were to teach someone if someone wanted that then i guess it would be a matter of hey i don't do this really but this person does or i don't do this but maybe we can incorporate xyz and make it a little bit this way you know i'm at an advantage where with the soloist imposter syndrome where if i'm teaching someone music one-on-one then it's my job to adapt to them and to teach them what they need and then what they want to learn and how they're going to grow But with writing, I need what I need from those scripts. I can't really bend too much on that because we have a format to follow. We we have a set of requirements. So I can't really bend on that. But I can say, hey, I don't think that you're good for this, but I think that you're good for sourcing. Would you be up for just sourcing scripts? Or I don't think that you're a good editor for the main channel, but maybe you can do the secondary channel. I don't make that call, but I know that other people have. So maybe something like that. Maybe it's a matter of just trying to work with people and go that extra mile a little bit more, and that could help. Well, that brings up an interesting point about like the context too. Of like it would sort of dictate whether the gatekeeper in this, like, whether it's you know hypothetical or not, is a good thing or a bad thing. Because like in this case, like what you just described, like there's an existing project or there's an existing voice. Or, you know, there's something that a new person would have to kind of respect you know in order to succeed like they would have to sort of like acknowledge that there's a thing that isn't me that exists and i need to plug into this and bring what i bring and i would say it's probably the same thing for like if you're feeling imposter syndrome as your beginning career as a doctor or something it's like there's not necessarily room for you to be like i just do surgery kind of my own way like (laughs) i got kind of my own spin that i put on this shit it's really cool trust like no they just want to know that the patient's going to be good to go afterwards and like it's your job to to get up to that standard, not their job to necessarily pull it down. And um, yeah, stakes are a little lower with my job. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just mean like it's different when there's that sense when it, there is an actual existing paradigm or context as opposed to something that's a lot more social or a lot more 
kind of abstract. Like if you're trying to break into a music scene and you feel like, yeah, shit, I don't belong here. Like all these people belong here. That's something yeah. where mm-hmm. you can maybe stop yourself and be like, no, who gives a shit? Like I can do what I do. Like you have to be willing to accept a little bit of friction potentially because just because you're at peace with yourself doesn't mean anyone else is suddenly ready for this. Like they still might give you shit, but you have absolutely every right to go in there guns blazing with what you do because there is no mold. But that context really matters, I think, with how healthy or how valid the feelings that can be imposter syndrome are. Yeah. And like how much of a pathology it can ultimately represent. Like before, unless it becomes like a drawn out thing or, you know, it becomes like a real issue, but like at least at the the get-go, that context really plays a role. Right. And that's our show. As always, Black Market Therapy is a Dead and Mellow production. And to stay in touch with us, you can follow Black Market Therapy and Dead and Mellow Records on social media. If you have any questions or comments, you can send an email to blackmarkettherapypodcast at gmail.com. This episode was scored using music from Ali Zagami. We'd like to thank her for coming on again as a guest. And if you like what you heard, please show her some support. She's got a lot of great records out. We'll be back in two weeks with a special episode and a special announcement concerning what it means when we say not religious, but spiritual. Until then.